Alrighty, so hello everyone, bonjour tout le monde, and welcome to a book launch and fireside chat with Alex D. Ketchum. We are so pleased that you could join us today in person or virtually. Just to situate you, we are streaming on YouTube live from Concordia University's Force Space, which is located on unceded Indigenous lands in Jojage, Montreal. At Force Space, we collaborate with our university community to activate the research projects and initiatives in development across the university by co-creating daily events such as this one. To that end, we are so pleased to have had the opportunity to work with our Concordia University Press colleagues to make this event possible during Open Access Week. So have a great conversation, everyone. I'm going to pass it over now to Acquisitions Editor, Concordia University Press, Ryan von Hausti, to introduce this conversation. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you, as always, to Fort Space for hosting uh, this event, as well as so many others. This is uh, one event that's a uh, part of one that we also had on Tuesday that's a uh, part of the Concordia University Libraries. Uh, sort of participation in international open access week uh, this uh year's theme uh is uh open for climate justice uh and uh alex ketchum's work pertains in so many ways to issues of sustainability as well as the thorough engagement with open access uh i'm really happy to have alex here joined with natalie curito who is the uh Program Director of the Interdisciplinary Studies in Sexuality at uh, the Simone de Beauvoir Institute here at Concordia University. And Natalie is also kindly working with us on a terrific collection uh, called Reading the Room, which is uh, really to, to try to find uh, pedagogical aids for discussing issues relating to gender and sexuality uh, and identity issues uh, in the classroom. Uh, she's also authored uh, um, with other people as well, co-authored, right? yeah, co-authored uh, a, a great better practices uh, guide that is open access and under a Creative Commons license uh, that's available through her website. Uh, really looking forward uh, to hearing a conversation between the two of you today, uh, and I want to thank Fourth Space for including this uh, actual fireside. <laughs> with a fire extinguisher just in case just in case um so uh let me introduce alex uh i would like to say that i think alex is probably the busiest scholar that i've had the pleasure of working with in 15 years of academic publishing uh over the last three years through the feminist and accessible publishing workshop and disrupting disruptions uh there have been 63 events mostly hosted online, some in person, uh, as well as authoring this book that we're celebrating today, uh, Engage in Public Scholarship, which really benefits from that extensive experience that you have gained in hosting and organizing accessible events uh, and finding, I think, insights from so many other scholars that you've invited uh, to participate, to kind of spread that set of better practices for how to connect with broader public audiences of important scholarly content and research. Uh, I've read this, I think, three times now, and each time I find myself learning something else. Um, and in addition, uh, Alex is soon publishing with us uh, a monograph uh, that's incredible uh, called Ingredients for Revolution. Uh, it's a history of feminist uh, American cafes, restaurants, and coffee houses. We should have copies hopefully next week. Um, and I have some advanced reader copies right over there with the books where we have for sale as well, uh, if you want to take a look. Um, and Alex is the faculty lecturer uh, of the Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies uh, of McGill University. Uh, I'm looking forward to your discussion. And uh, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for everybody who's here, as well as watching online. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Ryan, for those introductions. Thank you all for being here. I mean, you're facilitating the talk, but I just want to mention that Concordia University Press has been such a pleasure to work with all the way through. Uh, folks are looking for a press to work with. I highly recommend. <laughs> um, it's it's really such a, an honor and so exciting to be in conversation with you today, Alex. Um, 
just like for full transparency, Alex actually reached out to me earlier this year after I self-published this teaching guide and initiated a really incredible conversation about engaging in public scholarship where, um, where you gave me some of, I think, the best advice I've ever gotten about, uh, <laughs> about not just how to use Creative Commons, license, Commons licensing and self-publish open access work, but how to actually get people to read it. Um, and I think that's one of the things that is really special about the book that you've you've written is that you're sharing the breadth of knowledge and experience that you have. You're situating it within um, within you know the scholarly work as well as the kind of public public knowledge around how to engage in accessible and um, and available uh, kinds of communications across different platforms and technologies not just in terms of written technology, but also using things like podcasting and video as other kinds of mediums. Um, and you also have done a really wonderful job of encouraging people through the way that you write the book to actually think about themselves and their relationship to the work that they're doing um, with, with publishing, with writing, with dissemination of knowledge and ideas in a way that forefronts uh, engagement with other people. And I, I really, I really value that, and I think it's one of the nicest things to see about the work of a published book being available and, and engaged in that way. So I have like a ton of questions for you, and also I think there's lots of points of our intersection where we can talk, but um, maybe it would be great to start off the conversation since also there are a bunch of people online who are watching to just start about with you know how, how this book came about and you know, what for you is the most important takeaway from engaging public scholarship? Definitely. And thank you for all, oops, thank you for all those kind words again. It's just great to get all these compliments right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a few different origin stories for this book. Part of it has to do with, as Ryan was mentioning, the speaker series that I run. I was learning a lot of lessons from doing that. Also, I've just had a commitment to trying to make the work that I do accessible to more publics. It comes from my own background, being the first woman in my family to go to university. And I wanted to always share what I was learning in school with my family who didn't necessarily have access to university courses and trying to relay some of the lessons from what I was doing um, in language that they could understand or would make it interesting to them. Um, it also comes from, I was actually asking Concordia University Press for some money to support the speaker series. And Jeffrey said, well, maybe instead of giving you money, maybe you could write a book for us. <laughs> and uh, it was supposed to be a short book. Uh, it's not quite short, um, but so that early conversation is kind of where this book came from. And I also have this underlying philosophy with pretty much all of the work that I do. I'm really interested in how-to guides and guidebooks and pamphlets because it can take a lot of work to learn certain skill sets. And I wanna save others from having to start from the ground, you know, start from the bottom and actually just share like, okay, here's some really practical things you can do so that others can take that work and build on it. That's what I think in an ideal world, that's what academia should be about, is about putting a piece of the puzzle in there, letting others build upon your work so others can flourish and thrive. And so if I figured out something that works, I wanna share that so others can use it. Nice. Uh, one of the, the things you mentioned is that, you know, you were supposed to write a, a really short book and instead you wrote a, a pretty a, a decent sized book. Um, and, you know, you can definitely get into the book by reading it cover to cover. It's engaging. The language is really, it is accessible language. Um, you use really clear and direct statements. It's really great to, to, um, to open it up and, and just start reading. It doesn't require a lot of, um, of having to spend time thinking hard about what you're saying because you're communicating things in a way that is so direct and so clear and available to people to people across fields and areas. I mean, really, you've written this for people who are publishing um, and coming from an academic context, but I, I think so much of this would be interesting to people across sectors in our society, people who are activists, people who are um, you know community organizers, people working across different types of sectors. And one of the things that I, I kind of like about the guidebook format is that it doesn't require you to read cover to cover if you don't want to. Um, you can jump in in different places and you've written the book in a way that allows you to jump in. So um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about how people could navigate the book or different ways they could enter into it. 
For sure, yeah. So the first part of the book is really about kind of the theoretical frameworks, kind of the rationale for doing public scholarship, why it would benefit you for doing it, but what are other challenges, especially paying attention to how doing public scholarship particularly affects marginalized scholars, talking about labor issues and so forth, as well as some of these kind of larger themes that we hear about, such as open access, open data, and so forth. But the second half is toolkits. And the rationale for the toolkit section is that I don't think everyone is going to want to use all of these different strategies. You know, some folks aren't going to want to make a comic or a cartoon version of their scholarship. Some folks might want to learn how to make a podcast, but some people might just want to go on someone else's podcast, write an op-ed. So it's so that people can actually figure out what they're interested in or curious about and start to explore that so they can jump around the second half of the book. And even though I would like people to read the first half of the book to kind of have those frameworks, if someone doesn't have that much time, they can jump into the toolkits and then maybe go back and understand, wait, why is this feminist? Why is this accessible? What kind of frameworks are being used here? Yeah, that's a, a, a really nice way of inviting people to enter into a text through, um, you know, through, I, I think, different kinds of orientations to reading that I also widen and make more available engagement with a work of writing. Um, you talked a little bit about um, about what makes the, the work accessible and the book accessible and feminist and why those are important components of how you've written it. And, you know, the, the themes around social justice um, permeate throughout the book. And I would love to have more of a conversation with you about doing this. One of the, the things that has really drawn me to working on um, on public uh, public scholarship on pedagogy and gender and sexuality pedagogy specifically has been a set of, of encounters and also concerns over, over the strategies and techniques that we use in teaching and learning about gender and sexuality. And, you know, whether or not the kind of ethos of social justice that guides feminist and, um, and queer theoretical work as well as political and social movements, you know, what are some of the foundational orientations or values uh, that relate to your concept of justice or social justice that are driving the work and driving the writing? And what's kind of, what's orienting the larger approach that you're taking to the work that you're doing in relation to public scholarship? For sure. So I sometimes have this joke that feminist is in the title of everything I do. Uh, I make it quite explicit. It's in the title of almost every publication I ever have or somewhere related to it. Um, I think it's important to show where uh, my knowledge is coming from or to use those like $50 words like epistemologies and ontologies of where I'm coming from. And I'm trying to show kind of a broader view of feminism that incorporates thoughts around racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, disability, all like dealing with all the like ableism and also thinking about environmental components. So I want to make that really explicitly clear and show how feminism is a framework in which we can address this work. Um, and then the other kind of framing too is that I want to address the way that access is used in scholarly environments and in, and in discussions, right? You have frames such as open access, right? But Sometimes it's drawing on the work from disability scholars and activists and artists, and sometimes it's not. So I want to kind of also expand those frameworks so we can have deeper questions around accessibility. Yes, when we're talking about able-bodiedness or disability, but also in terms of language, in terms of class, in terms of internet access, and so forth, right? So an expanded version of thinking about access on a lot of different levels, not in a hierarchical way, but instead saying like, there's a lot of components to this conversation. And also to say that nothing is going to be accessible for everyone. Just as this discussion today, right? It's in English. So people who don't speak English, this isn't going to be an accessible conversation. Hmm. I think that brings up some questions around how we think about the universal conditions and values associated with justice and the kind of pragmatic and context specific ways in which we understand or interpret what it means to do justice work within the constraints of the circumstances that we're in, but also within the conditions that make those interventions most pressing. And I think that's really one of the things that I, is, I think is really interesting about what the guidebook is doing is that it's not saying that there's a singular way of doing 
um, engagement or access in relation to like knowledge dissemination or publishing, but rather that there are different kinds of considerations to bring in to those discussions. And that those involve thinking at the level of the individual who's the one who's creating the work, who's, um, who's writing or doing research, as well as the people who are going to be the possible audience who are going to be engaging with it, the work in its published form, but also thinking about the mediums and the labor practices that surround that. I think all of those different layers are important co components to consider when thinking about what it means to engage in scholarship that is grounded in social justice in some way. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how you see the work of doing this kind of uh, you know, open access, accessible kind of publishing um, as um, as connected to ways of restructuring or transforming the way that we think about how power works within institutions. I'm thinking here about the way that, you know, undergraduate students and grad students and maybe even just people in general, um, I think there's a general sense of opacity around how to how to publish your work. There's There are mediums and forms of publishing that are or forms of dissemination that are so available, like social media. And there's certainly a high level of literacy among certain mediums, among certain you know, populations or groups of people. Like my students are much more literate with certain kinds of mediums and social media than I am. Um, and that makes a particular kind of, of space of encounter available to them in some ways. But generally speaking, you know, like written publications, there there's is still a lot of of like mystique associated with it, how to engage in the process. I know that almost every grad student I, I know and have worked with has struggled with trying to understand how to venture into the peer review publishing process. Um, you know, as you write about in the book that there is discouragement within the institution of higher education. Um, uh, there's, you know, both encouragement to engage in public scholarship and to, um, to do knowledge mobilization in, in a broader sense. But there's also a structure that discourages things like self-publishing because it's seen as not rigorous work when you're not participating in the peer review process. Um, you know, what, whether that, that, uh, that form of, of publishing and how it circulates is recognizable, it, you know, is very much dependent on the field that you're in. Uh, so thinking about those tensions and thinking about the structures that shape how knowledge circulates and flows and how it's mobilized, um, I just wanted you to, to, and I wanted to actually just hear more about your thoughts about how, how the structure and framework of the book that you've written connects into the wider, uh, I guess, ecosystem or landscape around how publishing works. Okay. So there's a, a few lot ways there. I can do this. <laughs> and, um, so I like, I'll start with the first thing, which is that I like how you talk about kind of the multiplicity of ways to address public scholarship and accessibility. Uh, because there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all solution, right? And I think one thing that I hope to kind of unsettle with this book and with my work is even the ways that we're thinking about our research methods as being, we do the research, we write it up, we publish it. And it's at that point that we're thinking about where am I going to share the work? But instead, actually, especially if we're working with other humans, it might be different, for example, if you're working with snails or something, but if you're doing research, interviewing other humans, right, even early on in the process, thinking about how do I want to share this information with communities? If I'm working with, not on the community, right, what is useful for them? What kind of research outputs are useful for them in the process? And yes, there are the practical sides of that. You know, if folks are tenure track, they're kind of ways that they're being evaluated. Or for folks like me, I'm not tenure track, but still my pay is partly my salary is partly dependent on publications. And so, yes, there are some things I have to do, but how can I make sure that the work I'm doing is actually benefiting the folks that I'm working with? And so really early on in early initial stages of doing research, talking about folks, talking to folks what's useful for them. Um, so kind of changing this, this pattern that we do, this kind of timeline of thinking about publishing earlier on before we also get to that stage where we gone through peer review with a journal. And then at the end, they have the thing of like signing away our copyright or whatever, right? Like looking at things like Sherpa Ro Romeo earlier on and seeing like, okay, like what are ways that I can retain my copyright or share this in Creative Commons or so forth. Um, in terms of, okay, there's a lot of parts to the questions. I'm trying to think of every um, aspect that you touched on. Um, okay, so one is 
the can you say the last part of your question? Your second part? I know. You know, I, I really had written but, it out and was reading it, <laughs> yeah, so I'm yeah, trying yeah, to remember. Sure. Okay. So, <laughs> but I think okay. it is. I think it had something to do with um, with how the the approach that you've taken to the book um, brings about a particular kind of approach or way of oh, thinking yeah. about like transforming how we how we generally um, see the hierarchical structure of academic publication function. That is, that's hard to, it's hard for people to come into it unless yeah. they're, you know, well-situated or trained or, um, you know, I mean, I'm reframing this quite a bit yeah. actually now, so I'm adding too much to it, but yeah, go, <laughs> okay. go on. Yeah. So um, I'll speak towards that question at least. Um, so yeah, so I think part of it is that like in the earlier parts of the book, I talk about some of the issues as you're touching on with university saying, we want public engagement they're kind of vague about what this means. It sometimes just seems to be that they want us to talk with the media in a certain framing and like name the university. And so the university can highlight every time they're listed in the newspaper, whether or not it's actually like beneficial to the communities we work with in our actual research. Um, I think that there's going to have to be a lot of changes within institutions in terms of like what work is counted. And because we're really data, because of datafication and kind of metrics of how work is circulating, I think that's another challenge. How hiring committees are looking at our scholarship, how, um, like, what is seen as a true and real publication. I think that's like one important conversation in terms of like what you as a scholar are trying to do or need to do in order to keep your job, right? But I think there's another important conversation too of, well, who who are our allegiances to? Who do we actually want to share our work with, right? I don't think too many folks get into academia because they're like, oh, if I can only just publish in these journals and then I can see how often it's cited. I mean, maybe for some folks that's what it's about, but I, I hope, I don't wanna to be too cynical, right? I wanna believe that folks are also interested in learning and wanting to share that knowledge with communities. And so I think part of it is going back to those initial questions of how can we actually make sure that our work is having an impact on the world in a positive way? And that's not usually going to be in a paywall journal that no one is reading, right? It's so great if you want to have a conversation with five other experts, but is there a way that you can also share that information in another way, right? Without, you know, name dropping a bunch of theorists, right? But pulling out some of the main arguments. And so this is kind of why my book also challenges ideas of saying open access is the only solution. I think open access is great. It's a tool in our toolkit, right? But throwing a PDF online of our work is not the same thing as accessible scholarship. It's one way of breaking down that paywall, making it that our ideas can circulate. But, you know, not a lot of people are reading peer-reviewed articles filled with jargon in their free time. So I think a lot of this has to also do with universities thinking about who they're actually trying to serve, what the goal of a research institution is. And also it raises a lot, of, it's important in these discussions that are coming up about like, what is the relevancy, of, what's the relevancy of a university, right? Why are these taxpayer funded, right? Like all, all of these really big questions. And I think showing how we're actually doing work that is adding to our knowledge source, I think is important. Hmm. Yeah, that that um, that way of thinking about the accountability of the work that we do, not only as individual researchers and scholars, but also the institutional accountability, what the role of higher education or of universities are within society. And of course, you know, the models in Canada and the United States or in other countries is quite different. Um, you know, the public funding of education in Canada situates as well as the the more robust granting system that we have through federal and provincial funding bodies uh, transforms to a certain extent what the function and role of the research we do is because um, because open access is now integrated into the language of our funding agencies and so it changes the imperative of what happens with our research and how it circulates afterwards and you know the the thing that I think is really interesting about those kinds of imperatives coming from funding agencies is that the structure of, of education has, has particular kinds of norms and those norms are shaped by the, the local culture within the institution, but as well as the disciplinary norms and logics that happen 
um, more broadly that, you know, are maybe international networks that set the terms for that. So there's like, I think also a lot of friction and tension in the way that people who are interested in doing engaged scholarship, who are interested in, in doing scholarship that circulates widely and who want to follow non-traditional formats for doing that, um, are having to be creative about how they situate themselves in relation to the work that they're doing. I mean, I think the work that you're doing is a really good illustration of that. Um, and it's certainly something that I've been grappling with and trying to understand uh, within my own social location. You know, uh, it's a strange thing to come into an institution and take on the role of administrative, an administrative service role as a program director for a new, a new major. And part of what I realized really early on in doing that kind of service work was that uh, you you can't do that work in isolation. You can't do that work in a way that envisions uh, a kind of lofty canon that then you simply like implement. Mm -hmm. But rather, it requires uh, mutuality, accountability, reciprocity. It requires people to be in conversation with each other, and not just you know faculty members in conversation with each other or in conversation with you know. You know, people who are designing curriculum at the university, uh, but with students and other stakeholders, and that's I think one of the the components I think of of engaging in public scholarship that I think is really interesting too, and how you formulate the way that you talk about the communities that you want to be accountable to and that you're connected to um, is is thinking about that. Uh, a kind of flipping of that relationship that we traditionally think of as knowledge mobilization. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a kind of typical hierarchical top-down model, you know, the researcher conducts research that is pertinent and interesting to, you know, the gaps in the field and then mobilizes the knowledge by sending it out into the world. And then people can, you know, take it up and apply it. Maybe if, you know, people aren't reading their peer-reviewed published work behind paywalls, they're going to read the op-ed that they write or the piece in the conversation potentially, or if, you know, they receive government funding, maybe they'll write a report or a policy brief at some point if they're in those areas. Uh, or if it's in, you know, the corporate sector, private sector, maybe they're, they're looking at like schematics or something. I'm, I don't actually know how publishing works in that world. Um, um, but the, that, that question of like how to orient yourself in relation to, um, to the community of people that you're working with isn't just about your research object or subject. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about the area that you're working in and on. It's also about, um, about thinking as you start to build research projects, as you start to work on scholarship, thinking about who you actually want to be in conversation with at the end. And like there are interesting models in you know, feminist research for this. Like there's feminist participatory action research in education. There's action research that kind of it, feminist participatory action research comes out of or is in dialogue with in some way. Um, you know, uh, there's community-engaged research. I mean, this is something that at Concordia is getting really popular now. There's a big interest in this. And one of the things that institutionally people who are doing this kind of community-based research where they're doing partnerships with community organizations as the structure and basis for those research projects is trying to figure out how to make the kinds of research outcomes legible institutionally within those systems. And so um, I really like the, the way that, um, that setting the terms for how to actually build and engage in scholarship produces a kind of world-making invitation for a reader as well. Um, so you're, you're not only modeling what you can do with accessible publishing, but you're also, I think, introducing another set of standards for how we can create new norms in our fields and how we can, you know, set those terms as foundations for how we engage in that kind of work. Um, so I like that the book is pragmatic. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the pragmatics of like how to have those conversations with people. How do you, how do you start the conversation um, for, you know, not just building your specific research project, but thinking about where it goes and who the audience is afterwards as an early conversation rather than an afterthought. And for the people, just to clarify one aspect of your question, for the people that one is having the conversations with, you mean like the research folks, like the participants that you're working with, or the administrators, or with other scholars, well, that like in a non-hierarchical way? So I'm thinking here about what you're, what you're, what there's a, a kind of implication, I think, of the argument that you're making, both in the book and in our conversation, that, you know, in a, in a kind of, if we're thinking about action research, 
you're thinking about your research participants mm-hmm. as part of the conversation of like designing research projects yeah. and the outcomes of it. But you know, it's not only in an action model that that there are going to be people who will want to be engaged in in the kind of work that comes out who are not the stakeholders of the research itself. You mm-hmm. know, so I'm thinking here about about let's say you're you're doing research on um, you know, like your research, your book that's coming out soon on on feminist cafes and mm-hmm. and kitchens. Um, you know, like of course, are the people who are like worked in them, who've been mm-hmm. in them, who are part of them that like are going to have a particular kind of investment or interest yeah. in that kind of work. But you know, there's all kinds of other people who would probably you know who I think that you're going to engage with and that you're mm-hmm. going to be in conversation with. So like those people who are not necessarily the stakeholders in that work. What's this? Like, what are the strategies that people can use? to think about who those people could be or who those people are early on in the process. Because I think we know how to identify our stakeholders in research, but how do we identify our wider, our wider community, our wider audience, like the people that we want to, we want to make our work available to and with in the future? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So yeah. So I think it requires openness and vulnerability and experimentation. So the first thing is that I would challenge folks not to assume they know what their stakeholders want, and also, even when they first have those conversations, then readjusting, right? So some of the initial stuff I did in showing what I was like, what my research outputs were for those kind of like stakeholders, folks I interviewed, you know, one time I got the feedback, it's fine, but it's a little boring, right? So that required readjustment. Part of it also has to do with um, experimenting with different platforms and also seeing what folks are interested in. So. Part of it is seeing, of course, like as scholars, we're used to kind of seeing what other researchers are doing related to the topic. What about folks outside of the institution that are doing something related, but not necessarily the same? Sharing work with them, kind of asking them questions, um, also trying to circulate different forms of your communication with them, um, and even like sharing platforms. And that could be even something like on social media, like guesting on people's social media and stuff. I think one thing that I try to encourage folks to do with in the book more broadly, more generally, is to allow themselves to experiment and make mistakes and realize not everything is going to work 100%. And there's also skill sets you need to learn. So, for example, um, with the speaker series, we, you know, we're having events in person and events online, and we have these videos, and we have a lot of folks who watch the videos, um, and I can see kind of metrics of how it's being engaged with. And I thought, oh, maybe folks would want a podcast version of this. No one listened, right? So we tried something out, it failed. And then we were able to kind of talk with some folks who were coming and also kind of see how things were circulating um, in other forms. I think the other thing to do, I mean, it's always hard to identify the audiences that you don't expect, right? Because how can you expect what you're not expecting? I think one thing is um, paying attention to those moments of surprise. So um, I'll give an example from the speaker series again, in that a lot of people from Germany seem to be watching the event. I can see it in our metrics, not anticipated, right? So trying to like see like, okay, well, what is it about that? And kind of evaluating after that point. I mean, um, also, I think it moves beyond just like the initial research communication in terms of also networking with other scholars who are doing something related and seeing what's been working for them. I think part of it too, with public scholarship, not only is it vulnerability in learning new skill sets, allowing yourself to experiment, potentially making mistakes, but also vulnerability in asking questions, which is something that you would think that folks who do research were interested in asking people questions, but there's something that can be a little scary to say, I don't actually know exactly what's going to work here. And I think that's actually something we should value is allowing for that vulnerability. But then it kind of challenges these ideas of the all-knowing scholar that I think some folks are kind of tied to. And and definitely that are hard to acknowledge in a context where, you know, there are conventions and models for how to publish. But then when we start to venture outside of the mediums that are familiar, then, you know, there's a lot of unknown and a lot of question marks around that. Um, Can I add one thing too, is that, I don't want folks when they read the book and in the toolkits feeling like they have to just start from the beginning on everything and that they have to like, okay, so now you're telling me I have to like make a podcast from scratch and learn all these skill sets. Like people have already podcasts. They already have uh, 
online magazines, they already have these different platforms. And so sometimes it can also just being like finding folks who are already doing something related and working with them. You know, it doesn't have to be something that you're starting from scratch. I think that's something that does a disservice for a lot of our work. We see this within institutions all the time, rather than saying who's already doing this stuff and then supporting them and like contributing to that. Like universities always want to start a new institute, start a new center, start a new initiative instead of seeing what's already being done. I think in the same way with scholars, we can see, okay, who already has this platform and can we work together? How can I amplify their work and they amplify mine? And then if you get really into it, then maybe you want to start a podcast, you know? But that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself to kind of start that early on. And I just want to be clear, this book talks about more strategies than just podcasts. it's not not just about podcasts it's part of the chapter (laughs) do I mean do you want to maybe talk a little bit more about the different strategies I mean I think about like myself like you know a very like passive social media user um you know no training at all at how to mobilize like research in those kinds of environments or spaces like what are the tips for the people who are you know, thinking about the way of engaging or expanding engagement who are not active Twitter users already and don't have a, a kind of keen understanding of how to mobilize those resources. I mean, I'll just give you like a, an anecdote that like I'm notorious for never posting for, you know, anything for months on end. And then I'll post like three things within five minutes and then mm-hmm. never post again for months. And apparently that's not what you're supposed to do no, on any social media platform. Like yeah. yeah. A, a perfect way to never get in, anyone to engage with you. Yeah. I mean, so... Uh, For the toolkit section, I also talk about like the pros and cons of using any of these uh, formats. So yeah, social media is definitely one of them. And I do talk about different forms of social media that we see today. But as we all know, social media apps come and go, the platforms change. So the the hints here or the tips are not uh, just exclusive to Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. Um, But So social media is one in terms of, sometimes you can just use social media, right? Like a loudspeaker saying this project, this project, this project, but that doesn't actually usually fuel much engagement on algorithms. You also have to be sharing what other people are doing, um, tagging people and so forth. Every algorithm is a bit opaque, but um, there's also, um, so part of some of the strategies in the toolkits are digitally based. So yes, social media or blog posts or creating your own website or also kind of audio media within podcasts or digital storytelling and so forth. There's also toolkits of how to engage with physical materials. Um, So in terms of actually creating pamphlets or books or, because the thing is, is that when we have everything digitally based, that excludes a lot of folks also who don't have good access to broadband internet for folks who don't have certain technologies, who also don't like to engage with it. And you also lose some of that happenstance of certain um, experiences. There are some uh, instances of scholars printing out some of their work and dropping it into some of those free libraries around the city, for example, right? To allow for that kind of happenstance moment of coming across a zine with ideas that folks didn't anticipate. Um, Within the toolkits, they're self-produced, and then there's also stuff of working with others. So the self-produced could be those models of creating your own website, creating your own online journal, creating your own podcast or so forth. But it also has things like if you don't want to get into all of that, you want to just try something out, how to actually approach other people about being on their podcast, tips of how to prepare, uh, how to work with journalists, uh, both for interviews, for radio, uh, like on television or in print media, how to um, put yourself on different lists of saying that you're a scholar who wants to be interviewed. Oftentimes, journalists are looking for people who are willing to be interviewed, um, and there's actually different databases you can put your name on as one way, how to write op-eds and so forth. So there's like a variety of strategies depending on how much time you have available to you, how much you want to experiment, how much you want to work by yourself, how to collaborate with others, or uh, to use platforms that already exist. And then, of course, with and then there's obviously unsurprising because I ran a speaker series also tips on like how to organize events and make them more accessible as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Do you want to talk a little bit also about the the kind of, like you talked about the material aspect of being able to just stumble upon a piece of, of writing or a publication um, and different like strategies and reasons for why print is helpful. 
Um, but I guess I, one of the other things that we're in the crux of is conversations around the impact of like scholarly research and, you know, and, and environmental issues and considerations. Um, and, you know, not just, you know, the, the push to go digital with all of our mm -hmm. readings and materials to reduce paper use, uh, but there's also been lots of discussions during the pandemic around, you know, what the data impact is of mm -hmm. using so much high-speed internet and, um, you know, what, what the streaming components of that are. So, um, yeah, maybe you can yeah. say a couple things about that. For sure. Okay, so those are questions addressed in Chapter 10 of the book. <laughs> and so in Chapter 10, I talk about questions of sustainability and maintenance um, through, like, a variety of lenses. So one is, like, when we're thinking of sustainability, oftentimes we're thinking of environmental impact, which the book does address in terms of, like, as you were speaking to, like, everything that we do online, it is still, there's still a physical impact, right? Our computers come from mined metals, uh, data servers take power, right? They produce a lot of heat, um, all of the different kind of infrastructure underneath, like on the ocean floor, right, of our internet cables and so forth, right? So everything is material, even when it's digital. There isn't actually that strong divide. Um, and everything we do has like a physical impact. And different research actually shows that like having a physical book is a lower impact than um, online resources. But when we're also thinking about sustainability, it's also st sustainability of the work being able to endure. So um, as many of you know, file formats are constantly changing, right? Websites come and go. There's a huge issue of data link rot, right? When you go to an older website, things you click to, it doesn't go anywhere. And even when we have resources like the Internet Wayback Machine, and for folks who aren't aware of it, it's a wonderful resource. It takes like snapshots of the Internet at different times but it's not going to retain all of the visual information. It also will have issues with its own links um, and is also an imperfect tool. And also itself is vulnerable. It is housed in three different places of data servers um, in San Francisco, uh, Amsterdam, and Alexandria, Egypt, but also like, you know, it's still vulnerable in different ways. And then there's also local locations too. Um, so part of it is, all, and then the other question of sustainability has to deal with like maintenance and also what is a sustainable labor practice for you as a scholar. So um, just being kind of a cognizant of the fact that nothing we're going to do is ever going to be permanent and that everything is ephemeral and everything has like an impact on the land that we live on. Um, and what that means for scholarship, it's not just to say like, oh, everything's just bad and going to disappear forever, but instead of helping you think strategically about what kind of strategies you want to employ um, to make sure that your work can endure and have an impact um, and how to maybe share it in different formats. So if you've only read about the piece on like a blog post, right, and something happens with that blog, it closes down, um, like, is there other formats that you've also shared the work in? Um, yeah. That's great. How about the the way in which our work can be sustainable and like thinking about maintenance in terms of, you know, as knowledge grows or new developments emerge or new technologies become available. What are some strategies strategies or techniques for thinking about when people are doing, um, doing work where they're developing their own mediums or their own uh, objects for circulation through their own platforms, like their own website mm -hmm. or their own social media accounts, uh, you know, what are ways to keep on top of those things and to not um, not have it be something that's so overwhelming when a new technology is introduced? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this question of making sure things don't become too overwhelming is a huge one, yeah. uh, right? I mean, that's something I really address in the beginning part of the book in terms of chapter four with that access for the scholar, right? Not only making this work accessible for our audiences, but also like, how can this work be something that we can sustain ourselves, right? If we're teaching a lot, we're researching, we have service work, we also hopefully have lives outside of our job. Um, and so um, how to not make this just be another burden on top? I think part of it is to not look at this book and think, wow, this is a really big long to-do list that I have to do. But instead trying to see something where it's like, okay, maybe here's something I have a bit of interest and in. I can allocate a little bit of time and I'm not going to commit to like hosting like 50 events. I'm going to start with one or two. I'm going to try something out and also being okay with trying things, maybe getting them wrong, stopping or trying something new. 
I think that we're so discouraged from experimenting because everything feels like it has to be this big commitment. If we're writing a grant, it has to be, I'm going to do this epic thing of all of this and that, right? And I, I just hope that also within our work that sometimes our accessible scholarship can also be a source of joy and fun. And I think that is so missing when we're talking about academic work. Oftentimes these conversations feel like, oh, here's another burden. And even things that are fun can feel like burdens when you have too much on your plate. You know, I always have this metaphor of like, there's too much pie. I love eating pie. But if I had to eat a whole pie every day, I'd feel sick. And sometimes that's how I feel about work when it's just, there's so many things I like to do. But how can I allocate some time to eat a little piece of pie every once in a while and not feel like this has to be this new, huge commitment, this huge defining thing, you know, maybe starting off with telling someone, you know, who has a podcast, oh, I'll be a guest for your podcast or, oh, I'll try this one thing out. It doesn't have to be the be all end all of your academic identity. Um, I think sometimes some of us get, we're such keeners you know, and we want to just really commit, but it's okay to just try things out and have a little bit of levity about it. Mm. Not to say that this work isn't serious, but it, it would be nice if we can take a step back and just realize like, oh yeah, we're human beings and we're trying something and we're just trying to communicate with others. Yeah. I'd I like the idea of experimentation as a core foundation of how to approach the entry into the book, but also into transforming our own practices of writing, publishing, doing research dissemination. Um, you know, in, in the Better Practices Guide, the teaching resource that I, I, um, I co-authored with a former student of mine, Milo Martel Perry, uh, you know, one of the things that we say from the outset, we have like a how to use this document. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things from the outset is, you know, there is a lot, there is a lot that's been thought about, that's been tried out, that's been researched that's been debated. Um, there are a lot of strategies that people use. Uh, people are already using many of the strategies that we identify and outline. Um, sometimes people are thinking about those strategies. Sometimes you're just doing it because it's what was done with you and it's familiar. And so you're repeating mm -hmm. a pattern that may or may not actually work for you. And, um, and I think that idea of taking it slowly, figuring out what for you is, um, is, an, uh, an area that you want to experiment with, that you're willing to play with, that you have time and space to think through. And knowing that you're not going to create your, you know, you know the a final version of anything, um, you know, in a fixed amount of time, but rather it's a process-driven approach to thinking about what we do with our work is, I, I think, a really beautiful orientation towards this. You know, the publishing process often has a finished product, which is, you know, the publication of an article or a book. Um, and then it lives on in the way that people read it, the way that people engage in, in, in it with it, you know, through debate or through public events like this and speaking engagements. Um, but there's so many aspects of the kind of work of scholarship, whether it's, you know, in research and publishing and writing, or if it's in the classroom and teaching and what can come in and through and out of the classroom that, um, that I think that, you know, reorienting in all of those different sectors of academic work to experimentation and an openness to trying different things out as time goes on is a really, really beautiful way of, of approaching the work of doing scholarship more broadly or doing academic work more broadly. And it's something that I really appreciate a lot. And it's some, something that I'm also trying to understand how to work through because sometimes it feels really pressing and imperative to put into practice something that is right in a moment when it feels like a lot is going wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, maybe that's also just more of a, of a, a kind of disciplinary or not a disciplinary, but like a healed question of like, you know, how do we withstand the things that we can't quite control or, or we don't know what to do with, but we feel like we need to do something. And that call to act in some way, I think this is where guides are helpful. And this is why I also like the model of guides, not because guides tell us exactly how we should do things and what we should do, but because they offer us entry points into how we might play with something differently mm -hmm. and how we might make that thing our own and try something else and see how other people have done it. Um, and, you know, the way that I've approached that has been to also situate people within the kind of debates. And I think you've done a similar thing in, in this book is explain to people, you know, why, why 
there might be a reason to do something and why there might be a reason not to do that same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that those are really helpful places for people to be in conversation as well with different strategies or approaches for doing engaged scholarship is to understand how to situate yourself within a set of ongoing discussions. It's kind of, you know, like the lit review of the medium mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah, and like along with that too, something you had touched on earlier, right, is that it's also very location specific, right? Nothing's going to work in every situation. Um, and also one thing about the book in the toolkits, it still like highlights important work being done by different scholars, right? Scholars who have made a rap album about the history of rap because that was their dissertation work or scholars who are working on a certain topic and then make a comic book or a graphic novel based on that. And so what I also really enjoyed about writing this book is I got to celebrate the work of so many scholars, activists, and artists who I really admire. So Ryan had hinted about how part of this was, um, there's a lot of the people in the speaker series are cited within this book. And the reason that's the case is because they're people whose work I admire and I want to cite them and celebrate them and be in conversation with them. Um, and so this, this book continues those conversations and yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like the ethos of feminist citational practices of, mm -hmm. you know, not just citing the people who are the most cited, but mm -hmm. also the people who you're thinking alongside of, whose ideas are influencing the way you're thinking. Definitely. Yeah. Are we supposed to at some point go to like yeah. audience questions? I, I don't yeah. even actually know the format. Of, <laughs> am I am I supposed to direct us to do that or? Yeah. Do you guys want to have sure. audience questions? Now? Yeah, we can awesome. totally have some audience questions. And if anyone, I don't know if people on YouTube can also write in questions. If anyone is anyone watching. on the Zoom have any questions? If you do, feel free to turn on your camera. We'll spotlight you. Or also an invitation for comments. You know yeah. about how you yourself have engaged in public scholarship, or if you're self-publishing or writing right now, or disseminating, or if you've got really good techniques and strategies for using mediums. Mm -hmm. Okay, Ryan. <laughs> uh, just related to the last point that we were that you were discussing, uh, I was kind of curious if you had various uh, projects that you really want to single out as being some of your favorites. Uh, what do you think are particularly effective uh, sites or works of public scholarship that uh, that you've either referenced in the book or that say you've come to really appreciate since its publication? And for me, I would also just shamelessly plug uh, your feminist restaurant project. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess I'll start with, so Hannah McGregor's work was really influential on me and continues to be. So for those folks who don't know, Hannah McGregor is um, based in um, British Columbia and had the podcast Secret Feminist Agenda, as well as Which Please. And it was actually, I was an avid listener to the podcast. And there were really important conversations that were had there that made me really start to think about research communication, public scholarship in new ways that inspired some of my early writings of the book. So um, some of those podcast episodes are cited here. Both the transcripts are cited, but you can also listen to the audio format. So that's one scholar whose work I want to highlight just in terms of like initial thinking about the book. I also, uh, while I cite also a lot of other scholars who are experimenting, I also draw on a lot of work from artists because I think something that we don't often consider our work in academia is to be an artistic practice. Yes, there's people who work in like the arts who do, but I mean, like my, I'm oh, sorry, I'm a historian and I don't think oftentimes historians are thinking about the, their scholarship as an artistic practice, but I actually think we're doing a lot of writing. We are writers and so I draw a lot of inspiration from folks like Linda Berry, who um, writes beautifully about the connections between drawing and writing, from folks like Beth Pickens, who has this text called Make Your Art No Matter What, which has really helped me think about frameworks of balancing creative practice. And I try to view all of my academic writing also as a creative practice. Um, so balancing creative practice with other aspects of life. Folks like uh, Nicole Georges, who engages in uh, podcasting and graphic um, graphic novels. 
Um, I also just like for folks from like the speaker series, Mimi Anuaha's work around missing data sets is an amazing um, art and research practice that I really admire. Mindy Sue's work on uh, cyber feminism and the way that she builds websites with sustainability really at the forefront um, and the kind of infrastructure really inspires me around thinking about um, like use of technology in new ways. And she does a lot of work around indexing. Okay, well, now I might just start listing out all my favorite people. But okay, maybe I'll stop at that. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I hope you check out the book. And this isn't like a plug to buy the book. But since my publishers are here, I mean, yeah, yeah, it is a plug to buy the book. But also, it is available open access too. So um, even just looking at the bibliography, uh, because in some ways, the bibliography is kind of like a love letter uh, to folks whose work I really admire. That's really lovely. I like that way of thinking about a bibliography. Although sometimes bibliographies aren't filled with people that we admire <laughs> in <Yeah>. academic writing. <laughs> yeah. there, there's a piece I really like um, called like how to cite like a badass tech scholar or something like that. I'm blanking on the name. It's cited in the book. Um, titles are hard when you're on camera. Yeah. But uh, there's this practice too of thinking about citation, not only who you want to be in conversation with and whose voices you want to raise, but also about like, okay, well, Foucault's had a lot of citations. Does Foucault need another citation? You know, um, whose voices do we want to elevate? Whose work do we want to center? If an idea is coming from someone who cited a lot, obviously to a citation practices, you, you have to say where the idea is coming from, but what's going to take up space in the body of the work? What is, you know, who do you want to showcase and highlight? And they frame it in terms of who do you want to put shine on? Mm. But um, yeah, so in the intro of the book, there's a discussion around kind of uh, why use the citation practices that I do. Um, so yeah. That's really fantastic. I love that. Other anyone, questions? Anyone in the space at all? Anyone, are you sure? So I'm admiring the design of the objectness of the printed version of the book where you can see the two halves by the line, the black line in the middle and the physical objectness of it where it's also a, a useful reference book. I could see grad students like really enjoying it. Um, so you can easily see all of the topics and then flip through it and like it, it wants you to flip back and forth from the table of contents to various parts of either side and then anyway there's a beautiful objectness to it so I, I guess I was curious about um, your collaboration in terms of how it ended up looking yeah. like in its final form. For sure, I love this question. Okay, so this is another reason why I work, loved working with Concordia University Press because we had a discussion early on about like what my thoughts were about the book, how it would be laid out. Um, and so I remember pulling a bunch of books that I liked off of my shelf. And I was like, okay, I want it to have this warm and inviting feeling, but also a bit of excitement. So I was like, I want this shade of yellow and something like the hex codes. And I want like this shade of blue if we can make it happen. Um, and then also um, amazing folks at the press, you know, we thought like we talked a lot about the font because we wanted it to be a bit easier on the eyes. It's not um, technically like a font that's dyslexia friendly, but it's definitely a little bit easier to read. It's a bit more weighted towards the bottom. There was a lot of really intentional thought within design, um, within the design collectives that the press worked with. Um, like, it, we really thought a lot about this, and I'm so grateful to the press for listening to my ideas and also building on them and making them better. And I even talked about in early discussions about how I wanted the texture of the cover to be. I like touched a bunch of covers and then I said, oh, I like how these ones feel. So if you can touch them, um, if you, cause these were Zoom meetings early on during the pandemic. So to, and so the book actually feels really nice in the hands, uh, but also for the open access version on Manifold, it's also quite a nice platform that I find is pretty easy to navigate as well. Um, so I also appreciate that. I know some open access 
books and formats. It's like a really hard to navigate PDF and the font looks bad, but Manifold actually looks quite pretty. Um, and so I do like the aesthetic qualities of this. Um, yeah, so, um, and I was happy um, to work with this cover designer and Concordia Press has really been thoughtful and intentional about who they work with for their designer. So uh, yeah, and so their books look quite pretty. It's a beautiful book. It really does feel nice to hold it. And I like the backstory of knowing that this is intentional. Yeah, I, I'm a nerd about uh, typography and stuff. So yeah. <laughs> so thank you for that question. Are there any others? Also, I know sometimes it's like strange with being on camera and stuff. So I'm also happy to talk with folks afterwards too, um, off air. And in case folks didn't notice the fire extinguisher, I think that's just the best detail. Yeah, um, it's so fun. Oh, we yeah. have a sense of humor here at Force Space. We'll get you a mic. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, I was wondering if I could get a copy with all the post-its already in it too. Oh, yeah. I see you have. Yeah. Which one of ours? Yeah, I, I, like, I don't know. I would. I like I like all the small posts. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking I'm glad you talked about sustainability because I, I guess it's you know thinking about access not just as availability and uh, and thinking about engagement and and so metrics of engagement and and impact and I I see that like obviously if you're doing work and research and from the get go and the design it's you know you're saying who who am I doing this with uh, and it's emerging from communities and projects that um, communities you're part of need or want. But I, I guess I wanted to, I wonder in the spirit of like talking about all these projects that you're excited about or that have inspired you in, in the context of metrics of impact. So not just like how many people are clicking, you know, the podcasts that no one listens to, those things like, but what, ha what have you seen as like exciting ways to like, you know, we talk about that debrief, look back and, and say this actually felt meaningful for everyone involved and also for those who couldn't do the work but really needed or benefited from this work. So are there creative metrics of impact that you've seen in projects? Um, yeah. Yeah, okay, so these questions of metrics and data are like, because right, we're also trying to show to like grant agencies or to our bosses or committees, right? Like why our work is mattering and saying like, oh, well, people felt moved by it is really hard to quantify. Um, Karina McDonald, who's a graduate student at Concordia actually works on these questions of metrics and impact. Uh, and I cite her work in the book, um, but she looks at other kinds of ways that this has been tried to be quantified. So some, ways again, because you're trying to find different data. So if it's been shared on social media, how many times, not that it's been cited in other academic texts, but can you find how it's been linked to in blog posts or other places? Um, seeing like it coming through conversations can be really difficult to measure. It's hard to know how often a piece is put on a syllabus or name dropped in a kind of conversation like this. But I know some folks you know, they try to at least make a call on social media for, hey, if you include my work on your syllabus, can you let me know? Um, I do think that we will always be let down when we try to find an exact number to show impact, because oftentimes we don't even know the impact of the work till years later, right? That I know that there are some pieces I read when I was an undergrad that 10 years later, then I thought, oh, wow, that's actually the piece that moved me. Um, but I think we will continue to be in tension when we're trying to quantify our work. And I don't have a full solution of how to deal with this. Juan Pablo Alperin, based at uh, Simon Fraser University, has some really interesting work of trying to um, talk about uh, impact as well, and also how tenure and promotion and grant committees kind of look at um, other forms of scholarship and try to quantify it. So I would point to his work and the scholars he works alongside uh, because he's really trying to, he does a lot of like measuring of um, looking at uh, committee reports and universities and programs of how they themselves are trying to do impact and also trying to um, create new ways to have these conversations of saying like, oh, this work should be counted or not. So I'd uh, say Juan Pablo Alperin and Karina McDonald are folks who I think are thinking 
about these questions in really interesting ways. All right, maybe we'll use this moment of silence to transition from sitting with lights and cameras to standing around and chatting and perhaps purchasing a book in the corner over there. See how I that? Uh, we'd like to uh, officially thank you so much for your time and presence and uh, Natalie and Alex for the great conversation and got us thinking about all the stuff that we here at Force Space basically think about on the daily in terms of working with our community of researchers um, on a university campus and how to mobilize the knowledge that's coming out of um, the university through a physical space and through various modes of research engagement. So we really appreciate this conversation. I see there were some public scholars here in the Zoom uh, audience as well. And we appreciate all of you on Zoom who tuned in. Thanks so much. What's the final thing I wanted to say? I wanted to thank the Concordia University Press for uh, not only making this event possible, but getting this book into our hands or on our screens. So thanks so much, everybody. Till next time. Thank you. So thank much. you. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.4.concordia.ca or find us on social media at CU4thSpace. We'd love to hear from you. The Fourth Space podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced with Anna Vaklavec. Editing by Chanel Lees Marshall and Maximus Delmar. And our theme music, courtesy of Supercontinent. Thanks for listening.